But I say in the new laundromat, there is a, a complete disregard for prosecutions. You know, they bust the bank, HSBC, a prime example, and they find them a billion dollars, and absolutely no one gets arrested. The bank pays the money because it's the cost of doing business, and the bankers walk. Look at the ecstasy. Look at the club scene. Yeah, mm -hmm. in Ireland, the mm -hmm. club scene. Ecstasy. Hydroponic marijuana. You can buy all these drugs in the clubs, and that money goes someplace. Today, it's all trade-based money laundering. There's cryptocurrency uh, laundering. There's capital flight on a huge uh, level. That was Jeffrey Robinson sharing with me some of his jaw-dropping and intimate knowledge of a very dirty business he has documented and written about for a very long time. Global money laundering. And he says it hasn't gone away. In fact, it has gone through the roof from 200 to 300 billion dollars when he wrote his runaway bestseller, The Laundry Men, in 1993, to as much as 1.5 trillion today. As much as 2 to 5% of the globe's GDP. Jeffrey Robinson is the best-selling author of 30 books and a popular speaker on the international after-dinner circuit. It's all up on his website, jeffreyrobinson.com. And I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Born in Long Beach, New York in 1945, Jeffrey Robinson began selling freelance articles and stories to small magazines before his 15th birthday. He is prolific, and he is working on a revised edition of The Laundry Men, which could hit shelves as early as this year. He spoke to me by phone in a wide-ranging interview with the focus on money laundering and the intersection of drug money. And we even got to talk about Ireland and a certain bank there that was once in the headlines for some serious allegations. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Well, it's grand to be back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Let's get started with Jeffrey Robinson. What a fascinating interview! Jeffrey explains how he got to his latest gig, writing a revised version of his runaway bestseller, The Laundry Men. Well, I, listen, 26 or 27 years ago, we were living in Britain, and it became a huge international bestseller because it was the first book to talk about money laundering on a popular, in a popular way. And it really introduced the general public to money laundering. It's still, I mean, the book still sells in ebook form. It is still, I would claim the best and most complete book on money laundering. And somebody said to me, when are you going to revise it? In fact, I hear that a lot. So I sat down three years ago and said, well, I think I'll do that. And a publisher said, sure, let us have it in six months. And a year later, I called the publisher and said, it's not going to happen. Because so much has changed in the money laundering world in the last 26, 27 years. It's a completely different world. You know, in 1992, you could put how much a, a couple of hundred thousand pounds or punts or dollars in 
walk into a bank and they would take it. Uh, in 1992, there was a guy operating in Ireland, of all places, mm-hmm. who was running a bank out of his sitting room. And I mean, it was, yeah. it was called Hanover. And, and he was running... In Dublin City? In, yes. He was running this bank out of his sitting room and tied into, I think it was Jersey or Guernsey, one of the, one of the Channel Islands. And he only had money laundering as money laundering as his clients, and he would move the money through his uh, uh, accounts through some bank in, in the Channel Islands and into the United States through the correspondent banking circuit. Well, you can't do that anymore. What kind of sums of money? Uh, hundreds of thousands. But they were they were brigands and, and grifters and, and a few drug dealers, and mm. uh, it was it, it was a, a, a cottage industry, you know. So that's what was going on in 1992. None of that happens today. Today, it's all trade-based money laundering. There's cryptocurrency uh, laundering. There's capital flight on a huge uh, level. Listen, in 1992, the biggest amount of dirty money floating around the world was all drug money. Today, it's no longer drug money. Today, it's, it's corporate and political corruption. Corporate and political corruption? Corruption. That's where the big money... Yes, corporate corruption. Listen, are we talking about big corporations or medium-sized or small ones? this, Jeffrey. Oh, this stuff is all recorded and there are lots of people looking at this. You know, this stuff all goes through, for instance, the United Nations. There's, there's, there's uh, uh, meeting after meeting in the UN about this stuff. If you look at, look at the Arab Spring, look what happened at the, Ara- at the end of the Arab Spring. The leader of um, Algeria, Gaddafi, Mubarak, they all got caught with hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. You know, I, it, when, when Mubarak fell, and he was worth, I forget how many billions, I worked out his salary. And as president of, of Egypt, he was earning somewhere around $10,000 a year, which means it would have been completely impossible for him to have amassed billions of dollars. So are there a lot of financially corrupt leaders in the world? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in those, in those cases, Mubarak Gaddafi, for example, they believed, as do many of the African despots, they believed that the national treasury was their personal bank account. Look at Sonny Abacha in, in Nigeria and the amounts of money he stole and the fact that the banks wouldn't give it back. The Swiss wouldn't return it to the Nigerians for years. Now, in Europe and the United States, you have this kind of stuff happening, not necessarily on the national level, but you've got it locally. You've got corruption and graft happening all the time. Small town mayors suddenly realize uh, they can put their ha- uh, hand in the cookie jar. There are major scandals. Look at Goshen coming out of Japan on his way in, back to the Lebanon. Well, what's the take? Is he, he got caught. 
Of course. Do you think he was innocent or he's no. pleading innocence? Well, of course he is. They all do. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to admit he's guilty. No, of course he's... They, they, they're all innocent. We had a congressman recently from California who got caught using all sorts of federal money for his girlfriends, for vacations, for this, for that. And when he was arrested, he vowed to fight this. He's an innocent man, he said. I am, you know, I've never done this. This is terrible. And his wife said, yes, you did. And he resigned from Congress. But even then, such a sleazebag, he waited until the new year, till this week, to resign from Congress so that he could get his extra pension for the last year or something. I mean, it's, they're all so crooked when they... When a grifter gets into a position of power where he's got access to money, right? I mean, the, the digital, digital, the, the ability to move money digitally is is phenomenal. You know, there was a time when the only way you could move money was to put it in your pocket and move it, or get gold and ship it someplace. It's a, it's a it's a click on a computer and it's gone. Look, a lot of the public don't quite understand how quantitative easing actually occurs, either in Europe or America. But it, it literally, it, it's digital transactions on a large scale. On a huge scale. On an enormous scale. I mean, uh, 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 here's a perfect example. When my aging mother moved from Florida to California to be closer to my brother, I called the bank and I said, we're going to have to, in Florida, I said, we're going to have to close the account and we'll reopen it in Los Angeles. And they said, why? I said, because she's no longer living in Florida. They said, well, the money's not in Florida. The, the address of the bank is in Florida. If you want to change the account, we just change the address to Los Angeles. Now, that astonished me because I remember when you went to a bank, if you moved, you had to close your account and go to another bank. It's all computer, so we just changed the address and she maintained her bank, her bank accounts. Nothing changed except her address. If you, if you look at what you can do online these days, and what you can do with your telephone. My daughter went out and bought something for me and I said, I'll send you $25. She said, no, just transfer it on the phone. Well, she had to explain to me how to do it, but I think it's Venmo. It took three clicks, bang, she got the $25. Now, if you can move money like that and have, and no one knows it's being moved, I mean, there, there are money trails, but there are so many of them that almost impossible to trace. Imagine what you can do when you've got corruption, drug money, the results of uh, fraud and other crimes. Well, when we had the last financial crisis that rocked the globe, triggered, we're told, by the subprime scandals and misdeeds, all hell broke loose. Do you think another one of those could come? I think it's happening every day. It's just not being reported. I mean, I think this is happening on a daily basis all over the world. Well, look at, look at the, 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 what happened in Singapore. Yeah, one MDB, yeah. And, and, and Malaysia and Goldman and Malaysia, Sachs. That's right. And look at the people who were involved. You know, I have said one of the one of the things I'm saying in the new laundry, which I hope will be out this year, which was so different from 1992, was the gatekeepers, the lawyers, bankers, accountants, company formation agents, brokers, the middlemen. They're the gatekeepers, and you can't possibly move all this money without them because they're the organized system designed to work. That's a business to move all this money. So. If you can fool the gatekeepers into moving it, you're, you're home free because the, the corrupt money, the drug money, the, the illegal money becomes a dot on a computer screen someplace. No, it doesn't say illegal money. It's just a blip that some guy moves, doesn't even see it, just goes right through the computer system. No, no one ever checks. All the banks, all the law, they're bankers, lawyers, accountants, company formation agents, brokers. They're everywhere. Well, I mean, how do you how do you open a bank account? 
to buy a shell company in any of the uh, Caribbean islands, you need a, a, a company formation agent or a lawyer like Masek and Fonseca in Panama. You know, that's who these people are. And what I say in the new laundromat, there is a, a complete disregard for prosecutions. You know, they bust the bank, HSBC, a prime example, and they find them a billion dollars and absolutely no one gets arrested. The bank pays the money because it's the cost of doing business, and the bankers walk. It's getting worse because it's not being prosecuted, mm. and there is more of it. Worldwide money laundering is getting worse. Getting Have we a worse. crisis on our hands? It, it's already a crisis point, sure, because mm. what happens to that money is it gets reinvested in corruption and crime. If Does it get re reinvested in legitimate businesses sure that we see all over sure. the world? Hotels, the real estate, yeah, nightclubs, bars, restaurants? Absolutely, and, and, and major corporations. That's the idea, is to get the dirty money into the legitimate financial system, make it look legitimate, pull it out so that you can declare it as income and even pay taxes on it. You mentioned Ireland there earlier. We have a lot of listeners in Ireland. Do you think there is a lot of dirty money or any dirty money in Ireland today? Of course there is. Of course there is. The Irish, the Irish came up with something called unexplained wealth orders. The British are now doing it too. And they're doing it all wrong. Uh, the idea is the Irish uh, police, the government, will look at somebody who's living high on the hog and say there's no way you can afford to do this without corrupt money because your salary is not big enough. You don't have enough money to afford the roller and the place in Spain and the big house out in the country and the plane and the helicopter. And this is crazy. You must be earning money that's not declared that's illegal somewhere. So we're going to seize it all and make you explain it. And what happened was uh, the, the parliament, Irish parliament said, wait a minute, you're reversing the burden of proof. And these unexplained wealth orders uh, are going to fall apart because you're saying I'm guilty when in fact in any democracy I'm innocent you have to prove me guilty in Britain what they're doing now is they're finally making sense with some of these unexplained wealth orders which are issued by a judge you know you have to go to the cops go to a judge and they get essentially an order that says we're going to seize these assets until you can prove that you paid for them legitimately because it's unexplained wealth so they've stopped doing it for I think it was the wife of some Eastern European prime minister or president who had this humongous house in North London that he couldn't possibly have afforded on his salary. And they seized it and she took them to court and made a whole stink out of it. And I think the whole thing's falling apart. It's doing nothing. They also didn't like the fact that she was spending all this money in Harrods. What's happening now is that now looking at the mid to low level drug traffickers, they're taking the street kids and they're saying, you've now got, you live in a council house but you've got a Maserati. How did you pay for that? And they're seizing the Maserati. So essentially what they're doing is they're saying down at the bottom, they're not going to the head of the beast, they're going to the tail and saying, we're gonna take all your assets that you have made from illegal uh, activities. We're gonna take it away from you and make you prove that you otherwise earned it legally and basically put them out of business. When you put the, the street kids out of business, you cut off the cash flow and the reinvestment have you any hard evidence that there's a lot of money being laundered in Dublin? Is there, is there drug trafficking in Ireland? Well, we hear it reported. Yeah, then there's money being laundered. Look at the ecstasy. Look at the club scene. In Dublin? In, in Ireland. Yeah, mm. in Ireland. The club mm. scene. Ecstasy. Hydroponic marijuana. You can buy all these drugs in the clubs. And that 
money goes someplace. Now, if you if you think of the, I'm trying to remember the numbers. Remember there was a poor girl named Lala Betts who died in a club in England in ecstasy, and that really started the whole thing. And they mm. were looking at it. How much? How many? Because it was public outrage. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about should be. Kids. Yeah, you're right. You're talking about teenage kids, but these are organized criminals who are selling these pills. And they were talking about how many pills were being sold in the clubs every weekend, and then you multiply that by 52 or 104 if you Saturdays and Fridays and Saturdays, and you see at five quid a, a pill or three quid a pill the colossal amount of money that's involved. Where does that money go? Well, it goes to the gangs who reinvest in criminal activity, reinvest in ecstasy, reinvest in hydroponic marijuana, and otherwise commit more crimes. Let me just say, the hydroponic marijuana situation in Europe is very interesting. When the Netherlands, when Holland decided that they would decriminalize marijuana, what happened was the gangs went into business. The state was originally going you know, to be the supplier, and because the gangs could now operate more freely, They became, Holland became a net exporter of marijuana. They had been an importer of marijuana, net importer. Now they're a net exporter. They're moving the hydroponic marijuana all over Europe. That's wow. how big a business it is. Yeah, you're, you're not talking about, the, you know, uh, I don't know what you pay for a joint these days. I have no idea. Maybe a couple of, a couple of pounds, a couple of dollars. Five bucks, ten dollars. I don't know. But multiply that by however many are being sold in the clubs every Friday night and every Saturday night. And now you're talking a lot of money. After the break, Jeffrey Robinson will explain to me how illegal drugs are making it into Ireland on a massive scale and washing up in nightclubs in Dublin. And we must stress, these are Jeffrey's comments and opinions, charges and claims. We welcome any comments and briefing from the many hard-working and decent men and women in law enforcement anywhere on the globe, working to rid us of dirty money, shady goods and toxic substances. Any of the banks or institutions mentioned in this podcast are also welcome to come make comments and defend themselves. Why are 20 veterans a day taking their own lives? In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2,700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years. A relief that came in the most unexpected form, meditation and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, Ninth Secretary of the VA, says where war ends will inspire countless others, leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls where war ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, where war ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favorite library or independent bookstore. Here's Jeffrey Robinson explaining to me how some very bad and illegal drugs 
are moved into Ireland? Well, no, because it's not necessarily all in, in Ireland. You know, if, if there is a gang in Holland who's moving hydroponic marijuana into Ireland, it's coming in with the biker gangs who are riding in with it, dumping it, picking up the money. And so they get through customs in Ireland? Well, you know, that's not very hard to do. It's a big coast, <laughs> and it's not very well patrolled. The Irish coast is not very well patrolled. No, of course not. I had a, I had a story, I covered a story years ago with a, he was a, a fraud officer in the west of England, and he busted a gang who were moving with small boats from the English coast onto the Irish coast, just right across the, uh, the Irish Sea. I don't know how long it took him in a small boat, but there was nobody. You know, you, you, you can patrol the airports and you can look for drugs coming in and you can get intelligence about big shipments coming in with freighters and, and in cars and whatnot. But what do you do with the small guy who's just sort of bringing it in in a small boat and dumping it someplace? Well, not only is it happening on a large scale, but look at, look at the ports, especially the port of, of uh, the, the big Irish ports, the Irish sea ports where you've got freighter traffic. How many containers come on those ships? And how many customs officers are there? They do, they do great work, they try their best, and it's intelligent. And they're all hard-working people. Yeah, and they want to make a difference. But when you get a container ship that's got thousands of containers on it, how many can you inspect? Six, 12, 50? So what the, what the drug traffickers do, and they're doing it now with the chemical drugs too, not just the cocaine and, and uh, the coke and, and heroin, but they're doing it with the chemical drugs. What they do is they play a percentage game. They pack 10 crates somehow, and they hope eight get through. So the customs people seize one or two. They say, well, we seize some, we stop some, but there are eight more that get through. They just don't have enough manpower to inspect everything. Can they trace the ownership of the cargo that's seized? Yeah, you can. Well, you can, you may not be able to trace the ownership because the paperwork is phony, but you can trace where it's going. So does that not put the crooks at risk of detection? No, no, because they're, they're and anyway, they're sitting in where? Colombia, Venezuela, mm. Argentina. Would you say, Jeffrey, does cargo loads of illicit drugs, dangerous drugs, getting in to Ireland through? unprotected ports and so on percentage-wise through the main ports percentage game you know if, if two of your cargo if two of your containers get seized that's the cost of doing business you just raise the price three years rewriting the laundromat because it is so everything so much is changed. and that was a runaway bestseller it was indeed and it, the sequel was the merger and then after that came the sink and then there was a book called the takedown so there's been a number of these books uh, on the subject the laundryman was the was the big one and uh, it, it took it literally took me three years to redo everything because i had to go back to sources and develop new sources because the stories are so new and i'll give you an example of one of the things i found that's so upsetting i covered a story of a drug organization operating in miami and the guys laundering the money claimed to have been el chapo's laundryman now uh, it, not quite. <laughs> the guy, I mean, we're dealing with idiots who would want to brag about this. They weren't exactly Chapo's laundrymen. They, they were dealing with a guy who knew a guy who shook hands with a guy, you know. That. So anyway, they get busted. HSI, Homeland Security guys, bust them. They go 
Miami. And she says, no. And they said, what do you mean no? She says, no, we're not prosecuting this. Sorry, not taking the case. They said, well, wait a minute. This is a federal money laundering case. She said, too complicated, too much manpower, uh, too expensive to prosecute. I'm not doing it. So they went to the state county attorney, the state's attorney in Dade County, effectively the, the district attorney for Miami. And she's a very aggressive prosecutor and has the right people in her office who do this sort of stuff. So they said, we'll take it. So she prosecuted a federal money laundering case under the RICO laws, which is the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organization Act, the Florida RICO. So she prosecuted a federal case under Florida RICO and put these guys away. But it's significant that the feds, the federal prosecutors, the U.S. Department of Justice, wouldn't take the case. So I took the story and I was sitting with the head of money laundering in Washington at the FBI building. And I said, why are you not prosecuting these cases? And why aren't you prosecuting the gatekeepers, the bank accountants, company formation agents and brokers? They're the ones who are letting this happen. And they could stop it, but they have no interest in it because they're making a living doing it. And he said, don't argue with me, pointed across the street to the Justice Department building, the Robert Kennedy office building, and said, go complain to those bastards. We, we set up the case, we get everything ready, and they won't prosecute it. That's what's happening in money laundering. Why? Why, why won't it prosecute? Because, it's, again, it's complicated, it's, it's costly, it takes time. It and it could go on for years, and the case could fall apart. It could fall apart. More than that, there's, there's another factor, and you see it in America, and Britain's a different story, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but in America what happens is a young lawyer goes to work for the federal government for five years, makes himself a name prosecuting cases, and then goes to work on the dark side of the, the courtroom for some big law firm that defends criminals against the federal government. So the prosecutor who gets a case like HSBC which was absolutely black and white money laundering. There was no doubt, and bankers should have gone to jail. Justice Department says, you know what, we may need a job someday, and we're gonna get a job with that law firm over there, and they defend banks. And they pay us good money. And they pay us 10 times the salary we make here. And we're not gonna rock that boat. We're gonna throw bankers in jail when we're gonna end up defending bankers. Mm, we need mm. them to like us. Now, in Britain, it's a different story. And the British version of the new laundryman is a scathing indictment of the United Kingdom and their complete lack of, of, of any sort of uh, enthusiasm to prosecute money laundering. And that has to do with the city of London. Parliament talks big. The Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, the regulator, talks a big game. They're fast asleep. And the National Crime Agency is incompetent when it comes to money laundering. But Parliament doesn't want to throw their friends in the city of London in prison. They don't want to arrest bankers for money laundering mm -hmm. because many of them have, they golf with these guys and they play canasta with them or backgammon or bridge. They belong to the same clubs. They're too chummy. So what you have in Britain today is a lot of talk about how we're going to crack down on money laundering and everybody knows, wink, wink, nod, nod, nothing is going to happen. And it is just absolutely appalling. And the cops that I dealt with, the really good guys I dealt with in the early 90s writing The Laundryman, are absolutely sick to their stomachs with what's happened in Britain and the lack of prosecutions for gatekeepers and money laundering. Jeffrey, can you
you give us some uh, back of the envelope or some real numbers of the extent in, in dollar and punts yeah. and euros in Ireland, UK, Europe and US, so do we get a sense of how well, serious all this I, is? All right. When I wrote The Wanderman, we said I checked with people like the uh, or, uh, uh, agencies like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and we said that there was 200 to 300 billion dollars circling the globe in dirty money looking to find a home. That represented a mere 10% of the wealth held offshore. So there was 2 to $3 trillion offshore, which is a huge political force. This was a time when Africa was, was swinging with guys like Apache, and uh, Mexico was in the middle of a civil war, and, and Colombia was in the middle of a civil war, a narco war. Uh, Russia had just broken free and was becoming a narco economy. Eastern Europe was getting... So, you know, this is what was happening. Five years later, when I did the merger, which is about the international uh, conglomeration of organized crime, we upped that figure to 500 million. A few years after that, for the sink, which was the expose of the offshore world, we said it's probably around 700 billion. 500 billion, not million. 500 billion, 200 to 300 billion, 500 billion, 700 billion. Today, most authorities will admit that there is somewhere between 1 and 1.5 trillion dollars in dirty money circling the globe looking to be bedded down somewhere that represents an astonishing figure wait 10 percent but it's only 10 percent of the money in the offshore world so there's 10 to 15 trillion dollars that nobody knows who owns hidden in the offshore world someplace it's two to five percent of the world gdp that's how big this problem is and when you talk about drugs i think it is still true what we said 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that worldwide, more money is spent on illicit drugs, that includes pharmaceuticals, than on food. How about that for a figure? There's tax avoidance, which is legal, tax evasion, which is illegal. Tax avoidance, if you contribute to your own pension fund in the United States, if you've got a 401, you can deduct that from your income, and that's tax avoidance. And that's all set up by the government to help you avoid paying taxes so you can have a savings account. Tax evasion is if you've got a second job and you put that money in cash in your pocket or you get a credit card that you can spend without declaring it. So that's tax evasion. But if if you've got a second job and somebody is paying you in cryptocurrency that you're not declaring and you're spending when you go to Paris on a dirty weekend, that's tax evasion. That's something else. Then you've got something called capital flight. And that's very important because you see that in Eastern Europe. You see a lot of people who've made a lot of money in Russia, for example, who say, I really don't trust this government. I've now got a billion dollars. I'm gonna get my money out of the country. Now they may have earned this money legally or illegally, it doesn't matter. But what they're doing is they're moving that billion dollars out of Russia and through places like Cyprus into the offshore world in the Caribbean and hiding it so that Mr. Putin can't find it. That's capital flight. That's not money laundering. Do you think many of the world's leaders, we've spoken about this earlier, in Europe, the West, leaving aside Africa, have been corrupted by dirty money? Is it a systemic problem? It is. When it, yes, it is when it leaks into the political system. You know, if somebody contributes to a political campaign in Europe, the, the political party is supposed to know where that money's coming from. They don't always. We're going to wrap up here. So you've written so many books. I, I don't know where to begin or end, but which, which one are you most proud of? Well, it, it, because I've done major, 
biographies, I've done novels, I've done other nonfiction stuff that's not about financial crime. It's, it's like children. You know, which child do you like the best? Mm-hmm. You like the one who promises you the good nursing home. That's what you like. <laughs> that's the kid you like the best. If you were to look at the state of the, the globe today, but the Dow just hit a record today. Uh, low unemployment, uh, we're rocking on all cylinders here in the U.S. Uh, global economy appears to be in good shape. Is there anything in this picture that's missing? Yes. Yeah, the global economy appears to be in good shape if you're rich. If you, in America, have a health crisis that's going to cost $500, you may end up, I mean, there are 80 million people who would suddenly go bankrupt. There are people who are working two and three jobs just to be able to keep food on their table. You know, the global economy is great if you've got money in the bank. But it's also fueled by a lot of debt. It's surging debt, too. I mean, I, I forget what the figure is for the average American and the debt that most Americans have. But it's it's horrendous. And if one if one spark were to hit that uh, fuel-laden uh, uh, pile of straw, the whole economy would go up in smoke. It's all smoke and mirrors, actually. And it's... It's, it's sinful because, again, look at healthcare. Instead, we're spending trillions of dollars fighting wars uh, that we have to ask yourself, what are we doing? We're going to talk again. This has been fascinating. Political. Yeah, we're getting very political. But, <laughs> well, have uh, we missed let, how- me end, let me end with one thing. Through the years, I have met and gotten to know an awful lot of important people. And when I tell you that I am actually on a first-name basis with the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of England, I'm being true. That's true. Mm. My problem is, I am ashamed by it, and if I had my druthers, it would have been John Kennedy and Winston Churchill, not these two. It tells you where my politics are. Yeah, very clearly. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.